Hello, everyone. You are listening to This Medicine Life. I'm your host, Tyson Bell, a critical care and infectious disease physician at the University of Virginia. And if you're like me, you may love being in academic medicine, but it's hard, y'all. The goal of this show is to make that just a little easier through the power of connection. We're interviewing medicine faculty both inside and outside of UVA. Our goal is to connect with each other, to share our stories, our tips for success, and together become the best versions of ourselves in life and career. Okay, y'all, we're going to talk about promotion and tenure. P&T. What was the emotional response you had when I just said that? P&T stirs up a lot for us in academic medicine, which is why it's so important to talk about it. I'm going through the P&T cycle this year, and the question that comes to mind is, what is happening? All of a sudden, there's all these deadlines approaching. I'm reformatting my CV and all my annual reviews, which were basically, yeah, you're doing well. Now become, maybe you should consider changing your track. The reality is academic medicine has changed a lot, but the promotion and tenure process has not. And some of the advice we receive is either outdated, wrong, or it lacks the vision necessary to help us all thrive. So to answer these questions, I sat down with Alan Dawkin to discuss PNT. He's professor of medicine in the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism here at UVA, and he's the vice chair for promotion and tenure here in the department which means that it's better to hear his advice up front rather than receive an unexpected call from him later. We discussed his pointers along with the direction he would like to see PNT move towards in order to be more inclusive. So let's get right to Alan. Alan, good afternoon. How are you doing? I am well. How are you, Jason? I'm good. How was clinic? Busy as always, which is a good thing. Reminds me of why I chose not to do clinic. (laughs) (laughs) But let's go ahead and jump right in. This is near and dear to my heart because I'm going through the P&T process right now. But I guess we could first start by just going through the roadmap or an overview of people approaching the P&T process. What should we be thinking about? That's an excellent first question. I'd like to start back a little bit earlier than when you're deciding to go up for P&T because I really do think P&T should start when somebody's hired. You've got to have it They need to be hired with the right job description. They need to be hired with a mentor who can help guide them along the way. People who can, who have been there, done that, and who can be a a resource to the candidate because it isn't always up to the candidate when they think they're ready. Sometimes it takes an external view of the world to be able to decide what's the right time. So historically, 20 years ago, everybody tried to be on the tenure track, whether it's the clinician educator or clinician investigator or academic investigator track. And the, the other point I make is that that has really changed uh, in the last couple of decades and that I would say the vast majority of faculty that are hired are now on the clinical faculty track. They are not a part of the tenure process at all. So I want people to, I want the, the listeners to understand that that's probably the, the, the majority of individuals and it, it is in no way, shape or form any different, better, worse or otherwise. Realize that um, there's even some more basic questions that uh, people want to have answered. So one of them is just what is promotion versus tenure and just a basic overview of the um, setup. The three main tracks that are tenure. Our academic investigator, which is for PhDs, 
the clinician investigator, which for is, is for an MD, and the clinician educator, which is also generally an MD, their MD tracks. The two investigator tracks are meant for people with a focus on science, on research. And the main criteria for the first step in their promotion and tenure, that is going from assistant professor to associate professor, is excellence in research, and that's getting grant funding. Now, in the world of team science, it may not be that you're the only person on the grant, but essentially excellence in investigation is the only pathway to success for the first step for those two tracks. Thereafter, they have a second step that is the award of tenure. That step requires excellence in a second area, which is patient care or medical education. And then from that comes the third step, which is promotion to professor, and that requires sustained excellence. That means that you continue to do excellent work in those two areas that you've identified when you got tenure. There's timing differences between some of the tracks, but that's the gist of those two. And the clinician educator track is also the same three steps, assistant to associate, associate to tenure, tenure to professor, but the areas of emphasis in that track are usually patient care and medical education. Although There are many clinician educators that have developed grant-supported programs, research operations that are very significant and will have excellence in research. The other track, the other half of the world, or now probably 60-65% of the world for the Department of Medicine, is the clinical faculty track. Now, that is not a tenure track, so there is one less step. There are only two promotion steps. The first step is to go from assistant professor to associate professor, and that requires excellence in one of the three areas, and it's almost invariably patient care, but it can be education as well. Investigation would be unlikely because if you're doing enough work to have excellence in investigation, you're on the wrong track. Your job description isn't going to match your efforting in terms of where where you spend your time. So clinical faculty go from assistant to associate professor and then associate professor to professor. And and again, the word sustained applies to becoming a professor, which is that you then have to show that you have grown in your area of excellence, grown in your development of the impact of your work. Those are those are the big ones. There are some there are some other associated tracks. I'm happy to meet with anybody to discuss them, but I think for your audience, that covers the vast majority of everybody. Sure. Okay, so how about these reviews that we're supposed to do annually with our division chief? How are we supposed to be using those in this process? The annual reviews, the other part of this is that the annual reviews that are done with faculty members and their division chiefs are critically important. Uh, Again, historically, they oftentimes are sort of check the box, make sure everybody is alive and breathing and going to clinic and doing whatever. But I think in recent years, they really are meant to answer the question, am I on track? Am I doing the things that I need to do to fulfill the the job description for which I was hired, the things that make me better as a academic physician, and the accomplishments that are going to get me recognized for the skilled individual that I really am? The flip side of that is to make sure that people aren't overextending themselves, that they aren't getting involved in too many different activities that otherwise could draw them away from what's the reason that they're here. All right. So let's say we've done our annual reviews. We've done exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And now it's finally time to get our portfolio together. So what does this look like? The the process, the roadmap for going through P&T is really the year that they're going to go up, starting probably over the course of the winter, 
they they really do have to start pulling together a whole array of information that has to do with your clinical product. That is, where the patients come from, how many patients that you see, what are the diagnoses, what is the role that you play in a very specific niche that allows you to be an expert in that area, to be able to get the patient satisfaction score in the area of education, course evaluations, teaching evaluations, other scores that you may have gotten from giving lectures and other educational opportunities. So. When the time arrives to be submitting the beginning parts of your portfolio, which is essentially a CV that has to be in the format that the School of Medicine, the university requires, a personal statement about what makes you tick and what makes you excited to be here, and then a letter, a list, sorry, a list of potential outside and inside referees who can evaluate the quality and the quantity of your work. That happens pretty much in the spring of April, May timeframe. From there then comes the putting together of the full portfolio, which is a pretty extensive process as you have figured out. There is a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of information that's needed. Those things are in binders for a reason. They're not just in a folder. It's a it's a physical binders. I saw mine. Yeah. Yeah. They are they are everything you could want and and more. (laughs) So it it requires And putting them together requires some time and some thought and some strategy with your division chief. What are the things that are most important to me? What are the things that I feel like I have really had the biggest impact, whether it's in education, whether it's in research, whether it's in clinical practice, all those things matter. So that then is due sometime at the end of the summer. Then the Department of Medicine Committee gets together in September, where we review on a one-by-one basis every single portfolio. There's a primary reviewer that's assigned to that and a secondary reviewer that's assigned to an individual. They each have their own report out. We meet as a group. We all vote. There's somewhere between 10 and 15 faculty members on that committee. We make a decision. If there's a yes, then the portfolio is going to be moved forward to the School of Medicine. If we vote, we need more information, then oftentimes I, as the committee chair, get hold of the candidate. We have a division chief and we try and get all the information together and then the committee will re-vote. And if the answer is no, that's often because of the need for clarification of information. Somebody needs to pull together a different aspect, a different viewpoint on their portfolio. But we really do try to pull everybody that's going up to the next step, if at all possible, unless there's something that they're just not ready for, in which case then that's the responsibility of the committee chairman to meet with the candidate, to meet with the division chief and to work through that. So it sounds like you're the kind of person that we should talk with when we're getting prepared. But after we submit, we actually don't want to hear from you. No, that, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the guy, right? I am, I am behind the, don't talk to the man behind the curtain. No, no, I, I, think, I think that one of the resources that's available is the chairman of the promotion tenure committee for the department. I probably meet with half or more of the candidates at some point before they submit their portfolios help read the personal statements, to look through the CVs, to look through the letters of nomination that have to come from the division. Because I think they're critically important how they're crafted and not tooting my own horn, but I've read hundreds of them. I've written dozens and dozens of them. And it does matter that some time and energy and thought is put into those. They don't just flow out of the the, the pen off the typewriter, off the keypad instantaneously. So I, it takes some time, but I'm always, it's a good question. I'm always available, even as the process is ongoing, to meet with people and help rearrange and craft the way it looks. Quick question, because I remember when I was told, when I first came here in 2017, when it comes to physician faculty, there's really no benefit to having tenure. True or false? True. 
in the old days, I think that was more important. In this day and age, I, I couldn't tell you who has tenure and who doesn't have tenure. I couldn't. I don't even remember. All I remember is who successfully got promoted. And I do think Dr. Rosner would say the same, that we're looking for people who are excellent in what they're hired to do here. And if you're hired as a provider and you're excellent as a clinician, that is a victory for everybody. And I don't think that that extra step makes any difference in terms of how the world views you or how you should view yourself. I think the point is to find the track that best fits what you're here to do and move forward. And and really, to be honest, to answer your question, I'm not sure what tenure gets you at this day and age. So not even a salary difference? Well, there's one. So historically, it's a good question. Historically, promotional steps were linked to changes in compensation between 5 and 10% raised. So theoretically, having the tenure track gave you one extra salary bump. But I think as we progress to a more reasonable compensation model where people are properly compensated for the work that they do in whatever area that is, I think that's going to become less and less of an issue. I think people's salary and benefits will be more appropriate for them as an individual, not for what rank they are. I think that will be welcomed by a lot of our faculty. Second question, where do you see faculty get hung up the most when they're going through this process? There's probably not a single answer to that. I think there's a number of different areas. And I, if you pay attention as you go, they become less of an issue. I think the first one that comes up almost all the time is that of what is scholarship. And the definition of scholarship used to be how many articles you published as a first author or a senior author, what the impact factor of the journal was, how many talks you gave at national meetings. That has really, I think, changed I think that the issue is keeping track of all the little things that you do because the little things nowadays count. I also think that scholarship that is not classical scholarship, I would say, Tyson, that your podcasts here represent a scholarly piece of work that otherwise, five, 10 years ago, wouldn't have counted for anything really in the P&T world. So being able to keep track of this and being able to describe what you did, how you did it, the impact of what you did and what the target audience was for that given product. Because I think all the scholarship is really asking for is proof that you're in a career that is academically successful and academics include scholarship, which separates you out from being in private practice. The second area is probably reputation, and that is to say it's important to get out there. It's important to be involved in committees and organizations at the university, but it's also important to get involved in state medical societies, in the parent organization for your specialty or for your practices. So in general medicine, there's a parent organization. Endocrinology, where I am, there's two main organizations, the the larger one being the Endocrine Society, but also the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. And getting on committees, getting out there where people in other parts of the world and other areas of your practice get to know you and can say, yes, I recognize Dr. Bell. I I worked with Dr. Bell on this committee. We had a great impact and he was very helpful in doing X, Y, or Z activity. The other one, the other areas where I think people tend to fall down is, is no good deed goes unpunished, which is that when you do something right, somebody asks you to do something else because they know you're going to do a good job of that too. And people get overextended and they get out of their lane. You're hired as a primary care provider and you wind up on seven different committees that draw your time away from that. And it becomes hard to say, yes, I've established excellence in patient care when you're spending 50% of your time bouncing around between other meetings that 
don't necessarily directly impact patient care. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this is where the annual reviews with your division chief and having proper mentorship are important because I think that helps you. It's hard to say no, right? We're inherently good people who like to help other people. It's like me doing your podcast. And we want to do a good job and we want to make sure that the information is out there. But in your younger years, there's this tendency to just say yes to everything. And you got to be saying no is hard, but you got to be willing to do that at times. The last area I'd say where I think people need to pay attention is impact, which is that as you go through your careers, you do the parts that you're expected and that you're excited to do, document what the impact was. If you give a talk, it may be four or five years before that comes up on your promotion and tenure thing, but try and write down what was the audience like, how many people were there, get a letter from the person who asked you to give the talk just to document that it was well-received. It may not be a formal evaluation, but I like in the portfolio process, just scrapbooking. And and you need to pull together all those little pieces that tell the story properly and make it a the thread, something that's interesting and captures the importance of the moments. I remember one, I forgot who told me this. When I came on faculty, someone said to create an email inbox where I just put good things that people said about me. And they said it for two reasons. One, you can go back to it on a bad day and just look at what people are saying about you to just bring your spirits up, but also it's helpful for the PT process. So I think that's really good advice. And it's an excellent idea. Yeah. Because you always forget and we end up doing a lot and it's hard to document sometimes and recall when did I get that talk and what was that about? And, and keep your CV updated. It is so hard to go back two years and look through your calendar and say, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about the talk I gave to the family nurse practitioners. Just put it in the CV. It's easier to take something out if it turns out it doesn't really look like it should be there than it is to go back and try and remember what you need to add. And CVs are a living and breathing document. They change monthly. Update it frequently. There's no harm in adding something and then dropping it later. Great advice. As we close, I just want to ask you, looking forward, what would you say are the victories and some of the future directions that you'd like to see the PNT process move towards? Well, there's actually a committee, Sue Pollard in the School of Medicine has pulled together a group of individuals, mostly department chairs, but I'm lucky enough to be on that too, looking at what are the things that could be done to make the process better? What are the things that could be done to enhance P&T so that it fits naturally with faculty growth rather than being this gargantuan hurdle that you have to do every six years or three years or whatever? So the, the things that are included in that that we're working on, trying to figure out a way to make the preparation and maintenance and updating of one CV more automatic. In other words, there's got to be a way to pull a lot of this information together so you don't have to do it manually. Mm-hmm. The ability to get annual evaluations so that they are automated and fit into a form that's allowable for the PT process to document the words to support the notion of something being sustained, that every year you've done what you've been asked to do, then you've done it well. I think we also want to look at how we can document the impact of roles that are not classically associated with promotable activities. One of the really important is the designated institutional officer role, which historically wasn't part of anything. It didn't count for education. It didn't count for patient care, obviously, and it isn't part of research. So it didn't help you in terms of excellence. It certainly is a great service. But I think we have to come up with ways to recognize jobs like that that are just so important for all of us, for learners and for teachers and for practitioners alike. 
to be able to do what we do here at the university and to be good at it. So there's that. And I also think the last thing is we have to be better at making P&T feel like the diversity and the breadth of medicine that we represent here as faculty that there's got to be a bunch of ways in. And there may be common hurdles and common bars that we hold people to, but a bunch of ways into the process of P&T and multiple ways to achieve excellence and multiple ways to sustain that excellence. We've got to be flexible. It's not, there's tenure and then there's everything else. Modern day academic medicine is not the same thing as it was 30 or 40 years ago. And we have to recognize that. That's a really good point. I appreciate you for coming on. And as I go through the process, I've appreciated your guidance. But hope once everything's submitted, don't hear from you that much. <laughs> It'll be a victory. No news is good news. That does apply to PT. But thank you, Tyson, for having me. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was really interesting to record while going through the PT process for the first time. And end up having to speak with Alan after our conversation. Turns out I was hired on one track clinical faculty, but my job never really looked like someone who was hired to that track. So I had to make a switch. And I hope one thing to take away from this is to make sure you pay attention to your annual reviews because I could have benefited by paying more attention to that. But the broader point is that academic medicine has changed and PNT needs to continue evolving to match it. And to zoom out further, we need to create an academic environment where we all can thrive. So there are specific things that we should look at, like promotion and tenure for women in medicine or underrepresented faculty, and really produce metrics to know exactly how we're doing and where we can improve. And there are probably many other things that we could be doing, especially if you look at how other institutions have solved these issues. But what's clear is that in order to represent the full faculty, we're going to need lots of input and lots of ideas. So I hope this is just the beginning of the conversation. And that's our show. Thank you for listening to This Medicine Life. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, write a review, and tell a friend. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. This show was created, recorded, and edited by me, Music is by Dr. Malcolm Lex. Views and opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the view of the University of Virginia or any other entity. Please send me your ideas for topics you want to hear about or guests you want to have on the show. My Twitter handle is my first and last name, Tyson Bell. Please stay tuned for the next episode. Until then, I'll see you around.